Welcome back to the London Futurist podcast. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on your podcast platform. It helps others to find us. Feel free also to send us questions and suggestions. Also, we're looking for sponsors to fund a marketing initiative to help us reach a wider audience. The future is rushing toward us, and the better informed we all are, the better the future will be. Our guest in this episode is Martin O'Dee. As the CEO of Longevity Events Limited, Martin is the principal organizer of the annual Longevity Summit Dublin. In a past life, Martin lectured on business strategy at Dublin Business School. He has been keeping a close eye on the longevity space for more than 10 years and is well-placed to speak about how the field is changing. Martin sits on a number of boards, including the LEV Foundation, where, full disclosure, so do I. I particularly enjoyed the Longevity Summit Dublin last year, and I am looking forward to an extended program at this year's event, which is taking place from 17th to 20th August. This conversation today is a chance to discover, ahead of the event, what some of the highlights are likely to be. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us, Martin. Thank you. Martin, let's get straight to the point. What do you foresee as being some of the most interesting things likely to happen at the summit? That's a tough question to begin. Just four days, I think pretty much everybody is a top, top caliber speaker. So I'd want to be cautious about leaving people out if I start highlighting people. I like the fact that we have Steve Austad and Emma Teeling speaking about different species, different creatures and their lifespans. We had Emma Teeling last year. She was superb. She spoke about the unique metabolism to lifespan ratio for the bat. And Steve Austad's latest book, The Methuselah Zoo, is just a wonderful piece of work. And he's an amazing scientist. And so thrilled to have him. I'm looking forward as well to Michael Levin's talk. I'm not scientifically qualified to speak about this, but I find Michael Levin's area somewhat novel and therefore really, really interesting. It seems like something that in the future could have an enormous impact on many different areas. Can you tell our listeners what Michael Levin is doing? It's kind of the electrophysiology of the cell. They stimulate with electrical pulses particular activities. It mimics a bit of the embryogenesis or they can almost activate certain elements of the embryogenesis at will. That might just be one minor element of what he does. You'd really need to listen to Michael explain this. But the potential when it's explained and the fact that they've already taken creatures and altered their development by essentially like an electrical prodding is pretty astounding, far-reaching potential. So yeah, delighted that we'll get to hear about his work in Dublin as well. And how did you manage to fill four days of agenda? That must be quite a stretch. No, it, it really isn't. It was pretty easy. When you look at the people that were looking to speak and that unfortunately we couldn't accommodate, you could easily make another day of it. I don't know if, how the attendees would survive that, but in terms of the participants, it wouldn't be a problem. This is rapidly becoming the industry, if you want to call it that, or the area of human endeavor, whatever you want to describe it, of the 21st century. I think it's becoming really, really exciting. 
and people have different interpretations of what we mean by longevity. But in each case, they're all really excited and that excitement is growing and the general public is coming in on it, the media is coming in on it. So filling four days was not an issue at all. I guess it's not just about drugs, for example. There are conferences devoted to drugs for longevity, and I'm sure there'll be some talks covering drugs. But as you mentioned, there's electrical treatments that might be relevant. There's also, as you pointed out as well, learning from long-lived species. I've also been reading the book by Steve Ofstad and finding it very interesting. He points out that there's likely to be a whole bunch of different mechanisms that nature has discovered in each of these different species. And although we tend as scientists to look at short-lived species in labs, because it's easier to do experiments with short-lived species, the reality is that many of these long-lived species may have a whole bunch of anti-cancer mechanisms, repair mechanisms, and bats are fascinating too. And we tend to be afraid of bats because we think, oh, bats, COVID, coronaviruses. But they have found biological mechanisms to extend their lives much longer than you'd expect for such a small creature. So... I applaud you for bringing a whole bunch of different perspectives to this table. On the focus on drugs and development, there's a kind of a continuum, I guess, isn't there, that we're interested in. We want to know what we can do now. We want to know what we can do in the near term. And the difficulty of addressing typically later life, age-related problems, the difficulty seems to increase the further into the future you go. I guess a lot of the different conferences have a slightly different focus and if i was to highlight ours the hope is that in the majority we will concentrate on those hard problems of aging the things that other people are not really looking at aubrey de grey who is the kind of spiritual head of the event the history of his science and the focus of his science is not so much the current commercial outlets because there are plenty of people that will do that but the things that are more difficult and are still at a conceptual stage but need full research that's the focus in supporting his foundation as well, the LAV Foundation that you mentioned. And if you get very selfish about this, if you think about it from your own perspective, what you do now will help you a little bit. But the developments that are being undertaken by Aubrey and others are the things that are really going to help you in the long term. So that's the focus. Of course, there will be some things about current treatments, interventions, clinics. All that stuff will be covered. But the majority will focus, hopefully, on problems we don't have solutions to yet. You mentioned, Martin, that there's a bigger mainstream interest, a bigger public interest in this subject than before. What do you see as evidence for that? What are things that people are saying or doing or hoping for, which maybe previously they daren't express publicly? This is something I have thought about an awful lot. We spoke recently, that I met you in 2010 in London. The industry or the community, whatever it was then, was fringe. It was quite small and there was just a few scientists trying to explain that ageing and diseases are not separate entities, that we should be looking at this as one continuum and that we should be intervening in the biology of ageing itself. There was only a handful of people speaking out about that and it was seen as heretical. When I trace back over those years, I think 2013 was a big year, the hallmarks of ageing 2013 and also Google creating Calico. I don't know what they've done since, but the headlines and Time magazine and things like this, it began to filter into people's consciousness that this was a thing. And in each couple of years since, there has been a number of events that have raised this to the public consciousness a little bit more and a little bit more. 
And each year, it's interesting to see how that almost explodes. It's like a chain reaction. It's getting bigger and bigger each time. And I think if I look at it in terms of people I know who are not in this field, the resistance with which they meet a conversation about this has almost disappeared over that period of time. It's not an accepted area of conversation yet, quite, but it's almost an accepted area. And I think the general public are understandably wary about getting their hopes up, are understandably uncomfortable with something that could be so reality-shifting for them. But they're getting to the point where if they were just given a little bit more reason to find all of this entirely credible, which of course it is, if they could just get a little bit more exposure to the rigour of the science, I think you would have the majority of the world embrace this in a hurry. It's instinctive, but I do get the feeling that that's happening right now, that there are media companies and others that are looking at this and beginning to say, this is the story of the first half of the 21st century, and we need to get on it quickly. Now, you're seeing more interest from investors as well as the public? I noticed one thing. A number of years ago, if somebody got a million dollars for something, it was a big news story in this field. And now that is just pocket change. With the billions coming in from some organizations, I've noticed last year somebody raised 180 million or something like that, and it almost went without comment. It's a sign of the times, I think, that we don't bother to comment anymore when tens of millions are invested in a given company because it's seen as power for the course. Honestly, less than five years ago, that would have been seen as a newsworthy event. Martin, what about the media? A few years ago, a friend of mine got an editing role at a major outlet covering the health beat, and I tried to persuade him to look into longevity as an area. He said it's just too far from the mainstream. He couldn't justify spending any time at any conferences, even interviewing people. It just wasn't something he could put on his map. Is that changing? Are you going to get people from the FT, from The Economist, from the BBC, from The Mail, The Mirror, etc. at the conference in Dublin? We're getting people from New Scientist, and there are a few tentative outreaches from other mainstream publications. I'm not saying that we're there, but it feels like we're rapidly getting there. And I think as well, in terms of a couple of documentary makers and things like this that we're very excited about, it's beginning to crest the hill of becoming mainstream. I can say for sure that that person would now go and cover the event, but I think there's an increasing chance every time six months goes by that they would. And eventually they'll have to because everyone else will be doing it and they'll feel left behind. Yeah, I'm sure directionally that's true. Sadly, he's still not covering it. My impression is a bit different from yours. I'm sure you're right, and it's really only a matter of time. But my impression is that most people I speak to who aren't already interested in futurist issues still aren't taking seriously the idea that ageing could be cured, solved, stopped within the next decade or two. They think it's a bizarre idea and they also aren't sure they like the idea. But I do sense some stirrings among people who look a bit further into the future, some politicians starting to talk about it, investors clearly, as you say, thinking about it more seriously. So it feels like we're on the right track but still got a long way to go. But of course, these things happen very quickly. ChatGPT comes out and bang, suddenly everybody's talking about AI again. Do you see anything coming up which could be a ChatGPT moment for longevity? I think it's not impossible that one of the media outlets we have that can almost capture the entire global population sometimes. 
I think something like that, doing something to raise this in a single event in the global public consciousness is not impossible. Just to find the grounds that we're agreeing on more, Callum, it's the breadth of what we define as longevity here. The idea of eradicating ageing, I think, is still very uncomfortable for most people. But the idea of delaying the onset of diseases by preventive interventions is a very easy sell. The fact that those are the same thing, you don't really want to highlight because it confuses people a little bit and it does get them out of their comfort zone. People includes us and people can't be blamed. At some stage in my life, I would have found this all very difficult to process. And it's such an alteration of what you are certain of that you're going to resist. You don't just awaken to an orange sky and a blue sun and take no notice of it. So it's understandable, I think, that there's the resistance to that end point of the argument. And if you look at an awful lot of leading scientists, the way they describe it now is when you're 110, I want you to be playing tennis with your great-grandkids. The implication being that you'll die at that point. But the contrary point is that you're going to be in great health unless they shoot you when you hit 110. There is a contradiction there. I'm going to have you in great health at 110, but I can't say any more than that because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Every couple of weeks, there's a story in the papers about cancer being near to a cure, Alzheimer's being near to a cure. And, you know, if we could get rid of dementia, heart disease and cancer, that's an awful lot of aging gone. But people don't really want to make that leap. Everybody's against cancer. Everybody's keen to cure cancer and dementia and heart disease. But there's a big gap between that and being willing to, keen to, excited about the idea of getting rid of aging. We had Aubrey on the podcast in last November, and he was very excited about the idea that robust mouse rejuvenation could happen within the next two or three years. That would, he was saying, be a seminal moment, because once you have that, then the idea of longevity escape velocity for humans becomes entirely credible. Sadly, it sounds like you're not going to unveil something like that at the conference. The mice in question haven't lived long enough to get to that point in August. There are some scientists that seem to be indicating that they may have some very interesting findings. But the RMR, obviously, again, myself and David being involved, it's some degree of conflict of interest to be speaking about it. But I think it's the most important study that's going on in any area of life, to be honest with you. If you try to explain this to a child and you say, we have these interventions that work, the child would almost say, well, why don't you do them at the same time and see what happens? It's such a logical thing to do, but there's no incentives for pharmaceutical companies to do it. There's no incentives for academics to do it because it's a bit too risky. You don't get published, you lose tenure, whatever. So I think it takes a not-for-profit who's completely mission-driven to actually take these next steps. We'd probably also explain what robust mouse rejuvenation is. Presumably, Aubrey will be there talking about it, will he? Yes, and a couple of other people as well. The basic idea is it's like treating a 50-year-old man who might normally expect to live another 25 or 30 years. And if you give treatments to this 50-year-old man or woman, then instead of living another 25 years, they might expect to live another 50 years. In other words, double the remaining life expectancy. In mice terms, it means finding mice about 18 months old or 19 months old, who would normally expect to live another year. And the goal is to find mice that will, with a bunch of treatments, live two more years. And this particular project, it's a major project. It's an expensive project. It's costing many millions of dollars because it involves a large number of mice, a thousand, 
who are split into 10 groups, and the 10 groups receive different combinations of up to four treatments. And each of the four treatments is individually being proven in many circumstances to increase mice longevity a bit. So there's the drug rapamycin, there's the injection of young bone marrow cells into these older mice, there's a senolytics treatment that can clean up some aged senolytic cells, and there's a genetic treatment to extend the length of telomeres in mice. Each of them individually has made maybe a 10 or 20% difference to the lifespan of middle-aged mice in the past, and the case is to find out, will they augment each other? And can we get closer to this doubling? We might not reach doubling in this first round of experiments in the first two years, but we might find out enough to lead us to decide what goes into the next round of the robust mouse rejuvenation, assuming that suitable funding can be obtained to buy and look after another thousand mice for another two years. I just add to that for all the billionaires listening to your podcast, this stuff really matters. We're all running out of time a little bit. And why not have multiple trials running concurrently? To get to the point where aging is under control, there are an awful, awful lot of things we need to learn, mistakes we need to make, trials we run, successes we build on those. All of that stuff has to happen. The rate at which it happens is up to us. Personally, I think we should rush it a bit. I think we should get a move on. Rather than waiting to raise X number of million dollars to do a trial again, I think we should be raising multiples of that, getting these trials going now. If a trial like this doesn't have a success, if you can find out why it doesn't have a success, that's still a success. We're going to have to garner all of this information anyway, one way or the other. And the accumulation of different therapies and seeing how they interact and all of that stuff is what's required to actually make a real impact on this. Because there are many things that go wrong in aging and it's not impossible that we find some sort of password reprogramming route that does a lot of the heavy lifting but it seems inevitable that we would have to have multiple interventions. So you've given a message to billionaires listening to the show. What about politicians listening to the show? Mayors or regional leaders or even prime ministers or presidents. What message would you have for them in regards to investing in longevity? That's probably the easiest message of all to give, isn't it? If they go and take a look at their budgets and their health budget, and look at the volume of money they spend on people in later life, then the message gives itself. Not only is it a tragic process, the last 10, 5, 2 years of life, depending on the individual, and it is pretty horrible. I think we under-report that as well for the same reasons of self-preservation. You know, we think an older person just gets to an age and then they die in their sleep. It's not like that at all. It's a pretty horrible thing. And if what was happening to people in their 80s was happening to people in their 40s, we would all as a world be moving on this almost with a sole focus. And if you go into a geriatric ward, it's particularly unpleasant. It's a tragedy. It's also extremely expensive. Like you have someone, let's say in their late 80s, who's in poor health. They're in and out of hospitals. That's costing the government money. They will have some degree of home care. That's costing the government money. They will have some operations that in some ways are trying to push back a tide. Again, that's costing money. And eventually, you lose this person. And of course, every day and every week that they have with their families is 100% precious. 
and should be kept and everything else. But from a government's perspective, if they can go back to when these people are a little bit younger and make interventions, the savings are astronomical. Two of our speakers on this, Andrew Scott, Andrew Steele, have talked a lot about that saving and its enormous sums. They call the longevity dividend is in the trillions of dollars number for the US, just adding a year of extended health span or healthy life. Yeah, we've had both of those guys on the podcast. Very important messages. Along with Aubrey's Robust Mouse Rejuvenation Program, one of the other programs which people have a lot of hope for is the TAME program, the Targeting Aging Using Metformin. Near Basilei, who's been driving that for a long time, has been trying to get it started for a long time. Is there any news on that? Is he coming to the conference? Yes, Nero is speaking. I don't know any specific news on the TAME trial. I know its importance is that it's the FDA recognizing multiple endpoints, which of course is a seismic change from the pharmaceuticals perspective. If the idea of one intervention for one disease, if that is challenged. Again, going back to when I met David Frost, I remember two years later meeting a lady who was working in aging. That was her area of interest, but she was working in Parkinson's. And she was explaining to me that she had to work in Parkinson's because there was no other avenue for her to do anything if she talked about aging. So we still haven't bridged that gap yet. So most drugs now that have potential in aging would actually be put into Parkinson's, believe it or not. And she did do me the good service of explaining why it's that particular disease. The first is because it's neurodegenerative. You're dealing with cells that don't turn over. And the second is because it's animal models, you're looking at mice. And it's just easier to show signs of Parkinson's than it is to show signs of Alzheimer's. And that's it. It's that simple. So she's, like many, many other people, studying aging by kind of stealth. Because it doesn't make sense for the pharmaceuticals unless they have a single target disease. And the work that's being done now is not about a single disease. It's about the overall bodily system of the client and the generation. So I think the TAME trial conceptually is really, really important for that. Yeah, it's great listening to Nero talk. He's a really engaging speaker as well. So I'm looking forward to hearing whatever he's talking about. But I don't know if there's any specific metformin trial updates. Looking to the future, Martin, if we dare to look 10 years out, do you imagine yourself running longevity summits in Dublin in, say, 2033? Absolutely, yeah. If I'm still around, I can't see any any other reality. It's a privilege. I love doing it. It's something, you know, that we'll try to build an annual tradition. We'll try to make it something that people enjoy every year as well. I mean, it is incredibly important, but I suppose we're trying to live longer so we can enjoy life. So we'll try to make it an enjoyable experience each year and get it a bit better each year. So, yeah, I would be thrilled if I'm still doing that in 2033. I guess it's more than just learning information, finding the news, and that's important. It's also about building a community, encouraging people to connect to people who share the same vision that aging is a primary subject that deserves attention and can be dealt with. So if people are visiting Dublin, it's a chance to meet like-minded people. It's a chance to build potentially new friends, chance possibly for some people to become involved in new businesses, a chance for a new trajectory in individual lives. Yeah, no, it's, it's fabulous. It's the best thing about these events is what happens after the talks are over. Because it's still a collaborative, exciting new field. So, you know, without disrespecting any other medical field, but if there's other conferences in, in another area of medicine, 
most people at them are under NDA of some variety and they'll discuss golf and have some free drinks, you know what I mean? But they're not really looking to collaborate because they're in the silos of the big companies they're working in. Whereas this industry is not like that at all and hopefully won't become like that in a rush. So you generally see people have a chat, whether they're scientists, whether they're in some other technical area or AI or something like that. But even if they're not, even if they're just interested, marketing is hugely important for this field, hugely important. Advocacy of all different varieties is hugely important. And then you have the computer people meeting the people in bio and you get these synergies and it's wonderful. Honestly, it's David mentioned 2033 and whether you'd still be running longevity conferences. Ray Kurzweil famously believes, still believes, has believed for 30 or 40 years that in 2029, we will have longevity escape velocity. What percentage odds would you give to that happening before 2033? Very unfair question. Honestly, I have no idea. I know that the nature of technologies and exponential growth into technologies is very, very interesting, but also the combinatorial potential for technologies really takes it certainly beyond my grasp of what's possible. I know it's extremely exciting and it's likely to surprise. Not even the difference between linear and exponential, but it's the difference between looking at a particular area of life and looking at a whole intersection of different industries and different capabilities and how they might relate to each other, and how AI might help drug discovery or clinical trials or whatever it does. I also think sometimes that I absolutely understand the need to calm down hype, and I 100% understand that there are charlatans and that there are snake oil merchants. But sometimes I think we're guilty almost of doing the other thing. We have this idea that this human body is this perfect mechanism that cannot be tinkered with, and will never be changed, and is so complicated. And of course, it's mind-bogglingly complex. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, you can put a pig's heart into it. It's particularly robust, and it seems like it's an evolutionary trade-off that we develop, we stay mature, and then we start to lose the robustness for some sort of energy trade-off mechanisms, developmental procreation, and so on. But it really doesn't seem that it's beyond intervening in. And also, from a philosophical point of view, I'm nearly certain the universe couldn't care less. And I do think sometimes people have that perception that this is in some way some existential, philosophical quandary about entropy and stuff. Entropy is better understood in the scale of a universal time. I wouldn't worry about it when you have a shark in Greenland living 400 plus years or 300 plus, whatever the poor shark was. I know they got the harpoon out of his body, I believe, and they aged the harpoon to be 100 plus years old. It was quite old, that harpoon. So I think we need to give ourselves a little bit of a break here in the possibility as well. You mentioned about possibility of combinations, new ideas coming in. You mentioned this is currently a community where there's a lot of ideas being shared. Is it maybe the time to ask about decentralized science? Is it time to ask about the overall movement for collaboration instead of top-down control? I have noticed a growth in interest in open communities, growth in decentralized material. There was a conference in Montenegro a few months back in Zuzalu, a group of people who were determined to use open science methods, blockchain and decentralized technology. 
How important do you think that is for the well-being of our community? I think it's fascinating. I think it's a tool for collaboration. The desire to collaborate is there anyway, but this certainly makes it much, much easier and much more productive. I find that whole area fascinating anyway. When we first had the internet and we talked about open sourcing everything, I don't know if you remember the young guy, Aaron, Aaron, I'm not sure of his name now, sorry, but they did a documentary on him. Aaron Schwartz? Yes, I think that's right. He was the privacy campaigner, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. I think he published research from Harvard publicly, which wouldn't really put you on the top 10 terrorists in the world or something like that. But he was kind of hounded by the powers that be. Unfortunately, he killed himself. So there is this interesting continuous battle between the powers that be trying to retain that power and the companies continuing and so on. So sometimes I think that the longevity movement should take its lead from something like the environmental movement, where as opposed to deciding which is the right way to do something, you do it every way. You do the radical, you do the conservative political, you do the business style. I mean, if you look at the green movement, it includes all of these things. And I think the decentralized absolutely is a superb way of doing this, but also use the existing pharmaceutical companies and encourage them to see the financial benefits to investment in longevity and also talk to the politicians and also talk to the younger people with more reason to be comfortable with change and so on. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that in the coming weeks, we will talk to some of the people at the conference. We're really looking forward to that. Martin, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast and thank you very much for organising the conference. It's a brilliant event. I'm very much looking forward to seeing everybody there. My pleasure. Great talking to you guys. Thank you very much. <laughs>